All right, here we are, episode 16 of TechZing. I'm one of your hosts, Jason Roberts, and here coming from you live from Pasadena, California. And the other guy, the other bloke is Justin Vincent in Silver Lake, about 20 minutes away, um, on a beautiful Labor Day holiday, sitting here, working anyway. Great intro. Yeah. Okay, so uh, are you working today too, or is it just me? Um, I have been working, but more sort of around the house, helping helping the wife put up shelves and things like that. Yeah, because I, I kind of missed the whole point of Labor Day. I don't even know what Labor Day is. Labor I mean, Day, at least what I understand is you're not supposed to labor. You're supposed to take the day off and chill out. Oh. <laughs> I don't know if there's any bigger significance behind it. Uh, but Where, where did uh, it come from? I don't know. You'd have to look it up on Wikipedia. Oh, okay. But the point is you're not supposed to be working. But uh, that's exactly what I've been doing all day. Yeah. So, <laughs> so not much of a Labor Day for me. Unfortunately, I, as I've said and told you in a previous podcast, I, I overcommitted myself to like, uh, I don't know, I think I have five, five projects going on right now. Yeah, I know that so, feeling. It's, real, it's really tough. And um, But at the same time, I mean, I guess you're, what's the word? You're hedging your bets. Yeah, you know, in fact, I got an email a couple of days ago um, from a guy who has a project. And it's actually, it was like, it was like a recruiter. I met at some, I hardly ever go to like events, but there was this one event. It was, I don't know, it was kind of like a, it's called the Billionaires Club or something. Oh, nice. It was over in, yeah, it was over in uh, Beverly Hills, of course. And uh, I was invited um, by, you know, the guy who does the Mixergy podcast, Andrew Warner. Oh, yeah, I know him, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I had contacted him because he's here in L.A., and I, I can't remember why. I just emailed him, and um, I ended up you know, saying, hey, I'm at this event. Come on over. And, uh, and so, I, you know, because I was actually in that part of town for, uh, for strange reasons. So I went over to it, and uh, anyway, while I was there, I talked to this, this – I think he's like a recruiter, technology recruiter or something. And at the time, he said he had this project that he'd like to, you know, get me on. And, I, and that was, I don't know, three months ago, two months ago. But he just emailed me. And so obviously I'm totally overbooked now. But he's like, yeah, I'd like to do this project. And I'm just like, oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting being a technology guy in this kind of climate because um, especially when you meet biz dev people, because a lot of those those kind of guys are looking for tech guys. And they've all, you know, they've they've got a great idea. And, you know, this idea is going to make millions and you should get involved and you know, no, there's no money for you. You know, I just want you to develop it, but it's going to make so much money. You're going to be really rich if you get involved. That's yeah, just, that's just well, the pitch, you know, isn't it? I think you just got to like pick and choose. Every once in a while, you can take a flyer if you think the idea is really good and you like the, you know, like maybe the the guy who has the idea, if you think he's cool, I think the idea is cool maybe. But then the rest of him, you just got to, you know, hey, I'll work on whatever you want. Just uh, pay my hourly rate. You know, I'm a mercenary. So. Yeah. <laughs> whatever dude you know <laughs> that's because i have like i have like three of those three or four uh paid you know they just you know get paid by the hour right and, and then i got one that's like you described which is you know i was i was approached by uh, a founder had an idea and i decided to go in with him and not get paid and get uh get some equity and all that and then i have another one that i'm of course just working on it's my own idea but I think you gotta kind of. It's kind of what you you have your long game and your short game. Yeah. You know, it's like you gotta you gotta pay your bills. You know, week to week, month to month, and because if the long game doesn't work out, if you if you go out there and you and you, and you try and you take these big swings, you don't want to fall flat on your face and not be able to, you know, pay your mortgage or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. 
I mean, but at the same time, if all you're doing is working by the hour, sometimes it's hard to really get ahead of the game unless you're, you know, unless you have an outrageously high rate. Um, well, it's funny. I mean, working for clients doesn't feel that different to me. I mean, like having your own web consultancy and working for clients feels to me quite similar to working for the man. <laughs> like, it, you know, at the end of the day, you're answerable so the, to so someone. You're, so you're working for the men instead of the man? Yeah, you're you working like for the men, exactly. Instead yeah. of one? Yeah. Well, you know, the, the thing that's different about it is that when you have multiple clients, you, nobody really has that much power over you, right? If right. you have one boss and he says, you know, and he says, you know, boo, you're, you know, you have to jump, then you have to jump. You know, you're, you know, we need to do this or I want you to do that, you know, then you're, you're, you're you don't have, you have much less leverage in that standpoint. You got like five clients. If one guy starts acting up and being a pain in the butt or being, you know, a little too demanding or having un realistic expectations or whatever it is, you can just be like, you know what, uh, you're fired. <laughs> I got four other clients. I don't need your business. And, uh, and, 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 that's and not going to do wonders for your reputation though, is it? Well, no, but, but that's, that's, that's implicit, right? I mean, they know you have other clients. They're not going to give you too much grief because they want you to, to, to help them out and, and get their stuff done. And so they're not, they don't have enough leverage to act that way even if they wanted to. Now, hopefully you're working with people who aren't like that anyway, but you know, the, the power shift is different, but if you have one yeah. boss and, you know, I mean, it's now obviously, you know, you know, there are people who are bosses who are fantastic people and are fun to work for, but there are plenty of people who work for who aren't that pleasant to work for. So, but if you have many bosses, you know, you, they have that much less power for you. Just like if you're a web application, you know, and you're selling and you have like, you know, 10,000 customers, they're all sort of your bosses, but they all have such an insignificant say in your life that, yeah. you know, uh, anyway, I, that's why, that's one of the reasons, I don't know if I thought about it this way, but that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have multiple clients as opposed to just one, because I didn't want to have to have all my eggs in one basket right. for a lot of reasons, both in case it didn't work out, you know, because you never know, you could be working on a project and all of a sudden, you know, they decide to change you know, change business, uh, you know, priorities or pull money. Well, yeah, then then you're not going to get a month's – well, you may get a month's notice if you're lucky, but pretty unlikely. It's more like – this. it's more like, you know, in the, middle of, in the middle of your last month, they'll tell you this is the last month. You know? Yeah, yeah. When, um, yeah, because I was working on one project for, I don't know, three months, and um, and and then, then it was like, okay, they had to spend a lot of time – putting in a lot of business rules into the infrastructure that I built. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know. It's been like uh, six weeks or two months. I don't really know what's going on with them. Um, I, right now, I don't have time to do anything with them anyway, so it's probably good they're not calling me or emailing me and say, hey, we're ready for the next phase. But you never know, right? I mean, it's like things just get put on hold. You're not an employee. They're not writing you a paycheck. They can just say, well, all right, we're going to hold things here. We're going to do some stuff, and then we'll get back to you in a month or two. And you're, if you don't have a client, you're like, okay, now what? <laughs> hey, dude. Would, um, did you did you get those links that I sent you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, oh, you know one thing I wanted to say too before we change the topic of the whole sure. consulting thing. Yeah. I got one um, one of my contracts, which is actually a friend of mine who's sort of the, I guess he's the he's the sponsor of the project. We've worked together on a number of projects together, and uh, this one works out I like because we do sort of an extreme programming for four hours a day every morning. That's nice. So, if you've got a good rate for it, that's good. You don't need to oh, yeah, say no, the rate, but if you're getting something good, that's yeah, nice. Yeah, you know, I, I charge a hundred. I charge a hundred dollars an hour. Oh, okay. And uh, you know, I'm, that's 
it's not a secret, you know. Um, and maybe someday it'll be even more. <laughs> I mean, so anyway, uh, yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, that, that means you know, like eight o'clock. I try and start about eight eight thirty in the morning. Actually, it's been eight thirty. I want. I think I'm going to mark it earlier. So that means by lunchtime, you know, I've already made four hundred bucks, right? I mean, that's not so you're too ma- bad. You're making bacon basically before you know in the first half of the day. Well, that's. I mean, that's pretty sweet. I know that a lot of. Um... Uh, let's say contractors w- would like that kind of setup, that kind of scenario. Yeah, well, you know, it works out. And then, you know, if I I'm, if I want to work more hours, he'd be fine with it. I just say, look, I got these, you know, three or four other projects. I got I got to call it at lunch so I can move on to this other stuff because um, I don't want to put all my eggs in their basket because you know they may things may be looking really great now and they have a lot of stuff they need done. But three months yeah. goes by, knows who knows? And then, um, so if you have these other relationships going, you're you're kind of you're, you're you spread your bets out a little bit. But anyway, just the idea of, okay, one thing that sucks about having multiple projects is that you're constantly feel like you're behind on at least two of them. Right, right. <laughs> you know? It's like, I feel like I'm constantly juggling and it's like, oh, so I have to kind of like write, I, I have, I've kind of like got a notepad that five projects plus like several things I have to deal with outside of my actual consulting. Mm-hmm. And uh, every day I just, my eyes keeps going over, okay, what do I have to do with this one? What do I, what do I have to do with this one? You know, what do I have to do with this other one? Just like constantly be like, because you sometimes the two three days go by and you're like, oh my god, I'm behind on three of these things. Would you consider doing a like taking? Ta- I mean, essentially taking on an apprentice. No, no. So bring, I mean, bring someone else in who's sort of you know a lot cheaper, um, a lot earlier in their career. You can sort of guide them and help them, and they can do some of the more mundane stuff. I mean, am I against it in principle? I don't know. I mean, right now I wouldn't do it just because like I don't even have enough. Uh, you know, time to even think about it because you know, it's like first of all, finding somebody who's going to be any good, who you're going to get along with, who you you can get feel confidence, going to be committed to it. Because if you spend a lot of time and they don't produce for you, it's just wasted time. I mean, I cannot afford to like spend a bunch of time sort of talking to somebody and getting to know them and tell them about my philosophy of development and learning what they want to do and what their strengths and weaknesses are, and then for like it not to work out, right. a disaster. You know, I just don't have the time for that. And I would love to have a little more time where I could say, yeah. But if know. it did work out, then you'd be you'd be quids in. I mean, you you know, well, you <laughs> you'd be time in anyway. You'd get more time. Um, so that so they could take up, let's say, thirty thirty to forty percent of the slack. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, that's how you scale, I guess. I mean, that's why consulting companies grow. It's not like it's like one developer. You end up having, you know, a dozen developers and you know half a dozen or a dozen designers and all those people, and then all of a sudden you're a consulting company and you know, um, well, the, I mean, the, I, you are severely restricted if your time is your is your main asset, which is essentially what the, the yeah. situation you're in. Your time absolutely. is your main asset. Absolutely. So, my sort of thinking process on the short term is, you know, the, the consulting thing is not what I want to be doing like three or four years from now. It's not even something I expect to be doing more than a year. But who knows? Yeah. I'm hoping that one of these things that I'm working on, these bigger projects, will you know, pay off and I'll either get, you know, more income or something else. So like one of the projects I'm working on is sort of a, is a side project, right? And it's one of these sort of web applications that I think that could generate revenue. And it would, you know, like most things, it'll start off slowly and grow. But, you know, maybe six months or 12 months in, maybe it's making three grand a month, four grand a month. So you're, so you're trying to set up a business that can essentially make money while you sleep type of thing. Yeah, and then, but, but because you're consulting and... And, you know, because I'd be making 
the, um, enough money that I need to live, you know, working the rest of the time. And as that starts to pick up momentum and make enough, then it's going to start replacing the consulting hours. And all of a sudden, I only have to consult, instead of having to consult six or six to eight hours a day, I'm consulting four. And then down to two. And then I was like, ah, I've cut the consulting. I make enough revenue from this other thing. And they're just working on that. I mean, that's one way to scale into it. I mean, that's like the whole 37 things thing, right? I mean, they did consulting work. And then once base camp and this other stuff started generating enough revenue, they just kind of quit the consulting. I was talking to um, a, a, a friend of mine who was about, about this, you know, this, this thing that we're talking about. And he was saying that it's kind of weird that, because I think you and I both feel this way, that ultimately we sort of want to do our own things. And, you know, even though we're consulting, that's bringing, bringing in the bread and butter. One day we're going to just sort of cut those ties. But he was saying how strange that was because you've spent so much time nurturing and building a relationship and trust. And, you know, that's, that's what a great consulting business is, is made of. And, you know, we're, we're, the value that we've built and given, we're just going to sort of give away at the point where we cut free. Well, okay, let me think about that. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, that's fine to give that away. If, you, if, you're, if you're, like, in a situation like, you know, we've talked to Peldy and Jason Cohen, you know, in recent podcasts, and it's like if all of a sudden you're, whatever you're working on starts generating half a million or a million dollars a year working on something that you just – that you created that you really want to work on, yeah. your idea, I mean, yeah, I'd, I'd you know, I'd, I'd say I'd sacrifice the consulting – you know, model and whatever, whatever I've built up. I mean, you know, it's not like you're any relationships, you'll, you'll scale out of them, you know, gracefully and say, Hey, you know, help them transition at some point. And, you'll find someone else for them to move to basically. Yeah. I mean, but that's like any professional, right? I mean, you know, it, it, who knows? I mean, a lot of these, the things that I'm working on will probably f come to an end much sooner than, than that. I'm sure I'll have other clients by that time. Yeah. You know, um, but you know, it's just being a professional and in ethical, you'll help people scale out and and solve their problem, and hopefully you can you know write it very in in most cases you probably finish up their projects you know yeah. you can just write them to the end and be like okay after this one's over I'm not going to take anything new you know but you know and, and if you work with half a dozen or a dozen different clients over a period of a year or two you know and if this other thing you're working on for some reason implodes you can always come back and say hey guys I'm I'm back in the market if you guys need anything more or know anybody yeah I mean that's what happened to me this time I mean I when I had to start consulting i hadn't really done any consulting except helping out a friend once in a while who uh, would outsource some work to me um when he really ha or actually he was a designer and he sometimes have to have some coding done just you know stuff like validating forms and you know really simple stuff but he couldn't do those things so he'd he'd kind of ask me if i could help him out so that was it that was the only consulting i ever did but then all of a sudden i found myself in a situation where like i need consulting work immediately <laughs> you know, and so I just I just kind of went out there and I just sent some emails out to some people I knew and just said, hey, you know, if anybody needs anything done, I'm, I'm picking up some consult. I'm looking for consulting work. And it was funny because my, my wife was like, well, you should charge, you know, one hundred and fifty dollars an hour and this or that. And I'm like, listen, sweetheart, I don't know. I mean, we're in a recession. Yeah, you, you need know? to start off lower than that. You need to build Oof. up some trust and get and get the client base. Well, Sorry, I mean, <laughs> I, I, you know, I think, Georgie, what are you doing? Okay. You know, I think that you just, you know, if you know a lot of people, then maybe people can come to you and you say, hey, you know, I'm 150 bucks an hour. And they're like, yeah, you're the man. You're, you, I know you can do it. I'm willing to pay it. Then that's fine. But you, if, if you're like, man, I would have done it for 50 <laughs> at this point. <laughs> but I got nothing. And that's when I told her. I said, look, I'm going to charge, you know, I'm going to charge 75 to start. 
you know. Well, you're going to say 75, and, that, and they, 75. they're going to come back and say 50 or whatever. But, you know, I wasn't really to go that low. I mean, you know, I've been doing this a long time. I figured I, 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 figured I, would, I would have to get a lot of no's before I went down to 50. So I said 75, and, and nobody even blinked. And then after – by my third client, I was busy enough that I didn't have to, you know, take on work. And so someone came to me, I was like, right, it's a hundred. And, and then the next two or three clients was all hundred and nobody had a, you know, no one blinked. So I was like, all right, cool. You know? So <laughs> that's how you, I think that's how you lever, that's how you lever yourself up. It's like, eventually somebody will come to you and you're like still pretty busy. And they're like, Hey, I got a really big project and really want, you're like, ah, oh, it's 125. You know, whatever. I mean, and some people may may and if they say no, you're like, that's fine. I got, <laughs> I got plenty of work at 100 because I'm not going to replace one client that pays me 100. dollars I'm not going to scale out of that to scale into something that pays the same rate. You know, but if someone was willing to pay you 150 and someone else is paying you 75, you know, eventually you're going to say, look, you know, we got to scale out of this. You guys are going to have to up your rate because, yeah. you know, I can't, I can't continue to work indefinitely for 75 dollars an hour if I can make 150 or 100 or whatever. You want to move on from this? Um, no, I think we should talk about stuff. it all day long. <laughs> <laughs> um, so those so, links I sent. Yeah, I, I I saw the first one you sent, which was like um, was well, that, I was all over Reddit and basically Packard. why I'm done making desktop applications. Mm-hmm. And um, the the reason why this really struck a chord with me is because of the thing that I'm working on, Tweetminer, which is basically a Twitter client, and it's yep. it's. Uh, Desktop. Well, it was, <laughs> and you'll see why it was in past tense in a minute. Um, it was a desktop application that I was going to release. And the reason why I was um, wanting to make this Twitter client as a desktop application was because I was very enamored with the Peldi story and his desktop client and the way that, you know, when he made Bolsmic, he originally didn't think of a desktop client and then he sort of did it as a side project and that turned out to be the thing that was really successful. So I thought, well, you know, I'll learn from him and I'll go with the desktop client. So anyway, I showed I showed the uh, core functionality of what this thing does because it's not just a Twitter client; it does more and it brings value to the table. And I showed it to a couple of uh, friends, and and um, you know, potential like they wouldn't be clients, of course, they could have it for free because you know they're friends. But they're the type of people who would buy something like this. And mm-hmm. so so they then came around. You know, I showed them the demo, and they were like, "Well, that's that is exactly what I need right now. That's fantastic." I wow, when can I use it? When can I use it? I said, well, um, let's just talk through the pricing. So I said, it's a desktop application, and it costs 39 bucks. And they were like, 39 bucks? Oh, no, I, I'm not paying that. So okay. <laughs> I was like, but you said you really needed it. But, you know, you really want it. And, they, and, and they're like, well, 39 bucks, it's just too much to put, you know, to, to dip my hands in my pockets and, and pay 39 bucks up front. And, and mm-hmm. I'm like, well, how much would you pay? And they're 19 bucks. You know, for this, mm-hmm. and then I, I was like, well, I'm not going to make very much money at that rate. So I, you know, reposed the question and said, okay, if it was a, a web application, software as a service, how much would you pay? And they're like, throw me a figure. I said, okay, five dollars a month. And and they're like, sure, five bucks a month. Yeah, it's worth that. <laughs> but that's like, and I said. But that would be sixty dollars a year <laughs> versus versus an upfront payment of thirty nine dollars, and they're like, mm-hmm. yeah, feels like less. I can cut off any time. It's just five bucks a month, no problem. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's <laughs> it's funny. I mean, I'm not exactly sure how this psychology works. I know that I'm less interested in paying monthly just because 
I, I know there's stuff on there that's being charged that I don't use, <laughs> yeah. you know, that you're just like, God, I got to cancel that thing. And I keep getting charged every year, every month. But, you know, you're, you're right. I mean, if you can charge just a little bit on a monthly basis. Look, I mean, if I sell, you know, if I sell a thousand copies at 39 bucks, it's one figure. If I, if I have a thousand subscribers at five bucks a month, I mean, that's a great income. I mean, even if you charge that guy, even if you were charging two bucks a month, right? I mean, it's not like he's going to buy a new version every year, right? Three years goes by, that's 36 you know, bucks, right? That's like but why the same, charge uh, two bucks a month when, when he's perfectly happy to pay five? Yeah, no, well, that's fine, obviously. But I'm just saying even if you charge $2 a month, it'd probably come out about the same. You know, amount of money you spent two or three bucks. So, but you're right, if he's willing to part with it, Part with two or three bucks a month more easily than thirty nine dollars once, then fine. But I think the you know the things that this guy was saying in the article of about the moving from desktop to web apps. I mean, it's like you don't have any, you, you really don't have piracy. You have one version that's out. You don't have like multiple versions floating around. He said that like if you did a search for like I think it was called Bingo Card Creator or something, Less, he I had mean, like a hundred. <clears throat> he had like old versions floating around all these download sites that all these people were using and emailing him about yeah. having installation problems and having to deal with all that headache well and also the different i mean this this was the other point is that the desktop app that i was building only worked on pcs so i couldn't have even you know given it or sold it to my friend because he uses Macs. so yeah. so with with the software as a service he can use it via the web and you know give me money yeah yeah i would uh, i there's so many reasons to avoid desktop software I, I i'm also kind of more in the web camp i mean i can i have enough experience with both that i can build equally sort of with equal comfort but i mean that article I, lists them out very well in um sort of you know the headlines if we go through the article and just listen to each of those headlines then we can yeah, sort of talk about it so um you know the shareware funnel is lethal so that's basically what you're talking about which is just that, you know, he, he was saying that, you know, he's on version five or something like that now, but there's still version one out there hanging around, you know. Yep, that's, and a, that's a pain. Yeah, um, he's saying that, uh, you know, web applications convert better. And I, I yeah, mean, he, had, he had much better conversion rates, right? Unbelievable, like like over 100% more, more people. What was, what was funny is he listed the 17 steps from when they do a search for your product before they actually purchase it where they could just end up just getting confused or giving up, like, you know, downloading and they can't find it in the download directory, installing it, there's a problem with the installation, you know, they just, it's like, yeah. you know, just all these things, so they, they started it once and then it, then they don't start it the next time. And I don't know, there's just a million, there's, or not a million, but there's seven, there was like 17 steps, critical points where they could just say, ah, screw it, you know, or forget it, or not even consciously give up, but they end up just failing or forgetting about it. Whereas a web app didn't really have those kind of problems or not. I wonder if this article is going to just cause a gold rush for uh, software as a service. I mean, even, you know, moving on down the article, web applications are easier to support. And then he lists the number of tickets that he gets from a web application versus a desktop application. And I mean, I know myself, you know, when you, when you get your web application bulletproof and you build in the sort of self-help stuff, you know, you seriously reduce the number of requests. Yeah, I don't... Um... Well, I, I don't think it would call it a gold rush because this has been like common knowledge for like the last you know, seven years or something. I mean, it's just surprising that people – I would think the only reason you would do desktop software was just something that you couldn't build on the web or was just, you know, 
wasn't something that worked very well on a web. You know, like a graphics program, you could maybe do it on the web, but it just, you know, because of lack of HTML5 or Canvas yep. or whatever, it's just not really working yet or whatever. But, I mean, if it's something that can fundamentally be, there's nothing that, no reason why it couldn't work in a web page. How about, um, you know, how about the advantage of no piracy of your software? That's huge. I've never, I've never, I've never released commercial software. I've always built software that I didn't actually have to worry about that. Actually, I did once. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I did once. And uh, yeah, it's a pain, man. I mean, it's, it's obviously so much harder to, to hack a, a properly session managed um, user, user registration website than it is to sort of go through the bytecode and see where the block's happening and then unblock it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that sounds like a, that's like the arms race, you know, fighting against the hackers. It's probably going to lose because, you know, there's an army of them. <laughs> and, and, and even this, you know, just like there's so many good points, like phone home versus Google Analytics, because for, for whatever reason, if you release desktop software and it phones home, people see that as a real invasion of privacy, right? But on, mm -hmm. a, webs on a website, the whole thing's, you know, covered by Google, Google Analytics. Uh, and it's just right. sort of... Why? It makes it well, seem laughable, the whole, the whole, you know, uh, up in arms about the phone home thing. Yeah, I was thinking about that, right? Because, you know, like, if, you know, sometimes something will be sitting on your desktop, and if it, it opens up a port and opens up an outgoing connection, yeah. you know, your windows will pop up and go, whoa, do you want to open up this port, or do you want this thing to be able to talk, you know, communicate, or whatever? Yeah. And I, I don't know if it does a port 80 or not. Um, I, I really paid that close attention to it, but, because um, I, I don't understand why... Uh, why, why something that's installed on your desktop that was calling out to the web wouldn't automatically use port 80 anyway. But um, the thing is, I guess, is that if, if there's a desktop piece of desktop software that is opening up ports or is communicating to an external web uh, website, I mean, that, that program can do anything it wants on your desktop. It can go through all your disk drives, all your files, you know, do anything. Yep. Whereas, obviously, a web page can't. So you're really vulnerable to have if you I mean you're really open if you install something in your so, uh, some piece of software on your desktop to it doing something malicious. Yeah, I mean, but so. he's he's I mean the point he's I mean yeah what you say is very true, but um the point that he's making is that it's sort of a de facto it's the unwritten rule that good desktop uh, developers don't put phone home stuff in there, and mm, it's like yeah. so therefore you've got no great analytics versus the web version where you have yep. the analytics built in. You know, yeah, you know. when he was talking about the A-B test, well, I'll let you go through that. Through yeah, A-B testing, yeah. Um, so web applications can be customized per user much more easily. Once again, because you don't have a sort of server connection to the desktop app, it's it's much harder for you to uh, sort of push a, a personalized experience towards that desktop app. This is if you're not doing the phone home stuff. Right. So, But it's real easy. On a web app, you know, you can just totally customize it and make it look different for different versions, different users. Right. Right. And he was talking about like A B testing as like you could get you know, you can creating an A B test, he, I guess he was talking about he had wrote he wrote some module on Ruby or something and take him like, you know, thirty seconds or something. I <laughs> rolled a new A B test where he would take a lot more time to do something like that for a desktop software to to compile it and get it into this installation distribution format and get it out there and have enough users actually use it so it get some data back. Yeah, what a pain. And so you can't iterate, you you know, and he's always talking, I guess what he, what he put it was that um, all these little improvements can be like 1% improvements compounded. So, you, yeah. you know, if you can make lots of little improvements, which you can do 
scientifically, if you're using A-B testing, if you're like, okay, I'm going to make a few different changes, see if people like it or they don't, if it makes them want to use it more, if they don't. And then all of a sudden, it gets getting better and better and better quickly, much more quickly. So, you well, so yeah, that's where that where when his headline is, um, long cycles mean low innovation, short cycles mean fast innovation. So obviously, yep. with desktop, desktop software, it's a much slower rollout. I mean, apart from anything else, you know, it's compiled and not interpreted, and then it's got to be released and sent to the download sites, and then the update. You know, it's just it is a long cycle, and once again, yeah. you know, you end up with people with version one sitting on their machine. Yeah, now that's a that would be a pain. Yeah, I, I think you know. I mean, I think a lot of that stuff. I I mean, I don't know. I think even back in the late '90s, people were thinking, you know, you can do a lot of the stuff on the web. Just why would you want a, a desktop software? And it's in every year that goes by, there's there's more and more that you can do on the web because of cheap servers, because of better browsers, because of faster you know, connection speeds, you know, whatever, and, and Ajax becoming a big deal, and then Comet. Was, which... was this in your, th I mean, was any of this in your thinking with Prezo, or with Prezo, what, what was your think? I mean? Well, Prezo was kind of like a, a was sort of an inversion of that thought process, which was, wasn't like, hey, I want to build a, I want to build a PowerPoint competitor, or should we build it in the desktop or the web? You know, it was more like, um, you know, I was sort of playing around with dra some drag and drop and, you know, stuff on the web. I was experimenting with a Ajax. This is back before it was even called Ajax. It was just the XHR thing component. And, um, you know, I was experimenting with it. And I'm like, ah, this looks kind of like a whiteboard. Wait a minute. This looks kind of like a slide. You could build like a PowerPoint. Oh, I see. I see. And I just started, kept kind of going in that direction. And it kind of grew out of that. It wasn't that kind of thing. So it's like a technology led, you know, I've got the technology, so let me make Yeah, this. you know, and then I thought, wow, you know, if I could actually pull this thing off, if I could build this, and at the time, the only Ajax um, app of any note out there was Gmail. There was yeah. nothing else, or Google Maps. So there, so it was before Rightly, it was before, you know, even the Google, uh, the, the internet, the web spreadsheets, like NumSum and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, so I thought, man, if I, if I could get this thing out there and I can do a great job of this, because um, I've, you know, by looking at it, I'm thinking, you know, the world's going to move in this direction. Yeah. And if I, as long as I'm one of the top two or three uh, versions of like a web presentation, um, yeah. you know, app, then, you know, I'll be, I'll, I'll get into a bidding, I'll be in the middle of a bidding war between like a Google and Yahoo and Microsoft or whoever else. You know, Unfortunately, oh, as I said, Yahoo never entered the race. Uh, Google um, created their own, and uh, Microsoft never, I mean, just had no desire to, to do that, so it didn't work out. You know, um, of Google Maps, I remember when I saw that, like, I was, you know, vaguely impressed with the Ajax aspect, but you know what really sort of got me, and I was trying to think how the hell they did this, was the, the infrastructure of it, you know? Basically, th I mean, think about the world stored in images, in little mm -hmm. square grids, you know, and the speed that it gets to you at as you drag it across, mm -hmm. you know, and basically the whole world's there in three different formats. <laughs> That's a hell yeah, of an infrastructure. I, it's kind of cool. You know, I, I, there was a couple of different, I, I've seen, I've seen a couple different um, articles on the web written about like how it's done. Like apparently that technique isn't that difficult, you know, it's, it's, it's clever, but it's not like, it's not like you, it can't be explained in like a five page, you know, Dot, uh, 
blog post on the subject where they say, right. okay, basically, you got this, you know, this is how you store, this is how you tag or store, you know, tiles and based on their location and this is how you, you know, buffer stuff and whatever. But, um, you know, I think it's, it's neat. I mean, first time I saw it, I was like, I was just, I was very impressed. <laughs> that's maybe yeah. that's what made me want to start screwing around with Ajax because, yeah. in effect, that isn't even Ajax. Those are i those were like iframes and stuff, right? That yeah. wasn't even using the XHR component. I mean, it's Ajax in the sense that it's asynchronous because you, you can you can achieve you can achieve the same Ajax effect using hidden iframes that you can with the XHR component. I think that what they do is as you as you move the map, they sort of it's already sending stuff back to the server and they, they're, they're sort of guesstimating what direction you're going in and they start the loading. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you're probably doing that. I think That's you'd probably cool. have to do something similar to that. Otherwise, it would get kind of slow. You'd probably have those things already in memory. Already, I mean, load those, load those GIFs or JPEGs or whatever they are, the tiles. So what did you think of um, Are You Living in a Computer Simulation? You know, I didn't read that one. So what was that about? Um... Okay. I mean, are, yeah. I mean, give me the. Let's I'll try and give you the. I'll try and give you the headline. It's it's a bit difficult to wrap your head around. Um, okay, it's a guy called Professor Nick Bostrom, mm-hmm. uh, who basically released a a very serious uh, philosophical. Uh, what do you call it? Paper. Yeah, philosophical paper about the fact that there is a very high probability that we're living in a computer simulation. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think that. I, I'll try and explain this correctly, but I'm not sure I'll be able to. Um, if, Where is this guy, the professor? Um, let me just find out. What's he professor Faculty of? Faculty of like Philosophy, um, Oxford University in, okay. in England. Okay. So, so there's some weight behind his ideas. Yeah, so, so, the, so the one assumption that we make with this argument is that at some point in the future, humanity will be, you know... Um, Humanity will have computers powerful enough to create a, a simulation that's as good as our world. Mm-hmm. So in other words, for the participants in the simulation, it just feels like this. Mm-hmm. So that, po- that point may be 200 years in the future, it may be 500 years, but the point is, is that there's enough computing power to get to the level of detail where you can control atoms, you know, kind of thing. Right, yeah. right. Um, okay. Do you, do you have something to say about that already? That's fine if you <laughs> Uh, well, you know, it's interesting that, you know, I, I read something, oh, I read an article, and I'm trying to recall what it was, was talking about how we arguably don't have free will. There's no such thing as free will. Okay. Um, so if we're living in a simulation, then we probably don't have free will. In. <laughs> That's another argument that would fit in with that. So we're living in a simulation, and we don't have free will. Okay, so... You know? um... Because, okay. oh, guess what it was? They're talking about brains. So what they were saying is, what, what, I think what the article, one of the things the article is talking about is that if, um, you know, you set someone down, I can't remember the exact experiment, but they said, okay, are they going to, you know, do X or Y? They're sitting on some table and there's, yeah. they're presented with some information and are they going to, they're going to choose, you know, you know, door A or door B or whatever it is. Well, it turns out that they could, um, before they even made a decision by analyzing the brain activity, before they even were asked what they wanted to do, like they could tell what they were going to do. Huh. That's interesting. <laughs> so like, That's interesting. Yeah. yeah um, so, uh, okay, so the, the, the basic premise of this is that is that one day we will have computers and programs powerful enough to mimic reality. And or, at least, or somebody already has them and we are in their simulation well, now. No, well, let, let, me, let, me, let me build up the argument for you. So, mm-hmm. um, so his... his 
idea is not like the Matrix where we're plugged in. It's more like we're just part of a computer simulation, like Sims, like the characters inside Sims. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then, then he then he says, okay. So assuming that now we have three points that that one of these is most probably true, right? But and and assume if you assume that the other two are false, then you come up with something interesting. So the first the first assumption that he says, and he he says. I think he's saying this is probably false. That's what he's saying. But this is one of the one of the possibilities, and that is that all civilizations or a majority of civilizations uh, would never actually get to the point of building that machine because they're going to blow themselves up first. Okay. So he's he's saying discount that. Then he's saying possibility number two is that. Maybe we do get to that stage, and the stage he calls it is post-human. So basically, the stage where we we can go from being humans to virtual characters, right? right. So stage number two is when when we become post-human, we're not actually interested in running simulations. That that very few people are interested in running simulations, or no one's interested in running simulations. And he's saying that's probably false. So therefore, <laughs> answer number three is we're most likely in a computer simulation because. <laughs> because yeah. it, it, at point number two, if that's true, if you look at today, I mean, how many thousands of people run Sims, right? What run what they call ancestral simulations? So there's, you know, maybe tens of thousands of ancestral simulations running today. It's just mm -hmm. they're very low bit and low quality. So if you extrapolate this into the future, a thousand years into the future, you'll say there's hundreds of thousands of ancestral computer simulations that are this this level of quality running. So therefore, there is at least a twenty percent chance that we're in one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny. You like they give you a sort of a sense of freedom. You're like, ah, you know what? Screw it. I'm just an avatar anyway. So what does it matter? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm just an avatar in somebody's stupid simulation. So why should I worry about this? <laughs> you know? I, I don't even know how it would affect. I mean, it wouldn't really make a difference one way or another. I mean, it's just like if if this really was a simulation. I mean, so what? It's it feels pretty real. <laughs> it's real enough for you. Well, it's all you know, I guess. Yeah. Well, maybe it makes sense. You know, you could, you could, if you went along that line of thinking. You know, they, t you know, that there's a concept called quantum entanglement. Yeah. Or spooky action at a distance. I think they call it, where it's like you, you, some particle is affected, some quantum particle or whatever is affected at one level, and then another part of the universe or something, an article, uh, another particle is affected by whatever was done to the first particle. Right. Yep. There's no speed of light transmission or anything like that. And they've uh, they've demonstrated this, I think, in different physics experiments and things like that, quantum entanglement or yep. spooky action. Distance. I can't remember. Maybe I'm misusing the terms. But if that's the case, you'd say, well, if this is a simulation, then quantum entanglement is essentially just like, you know, like uh, – uh, two address spaces in some computer that are like representing different parts of the simulation, but they happen to be right next to each other. So sometimes yeah. it's Jeff. Well, right? I mean, the the, uh, the the address next door, you know. I mean, in one way, it has to be true that it's a computer simulation because if you think about it, you know, w w what is what what is a computer other than just stuff happening? <laughs> yeah, there was an article. There's a book I have on that called talking about. That the universe is just one big computer. It is. Yeah. That's what it is, effectively. Um, Talk a bit more about that. That's interesting. Well, I I, I should need I really need to read the book first. It's oh. one of those books I bought <laughs> that's like six hundred pages and is sitting in, on my. It's been sitting on my uh, night table for the last like two years or something. Okay. I don't know. It's it was a, it has a really long name. Um, I can't remember, but 
I, I, I was kind of the things you read about. It sounds interesting, but then when you actually get on to read it, I was just like, I don't know if I'm in the mood for this. Okay. It's like the whole concept gets a little depressing. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like sometimes that stuff of like, what is life? And are we just a simulation? And what is free will? I don't know. I can only talk about it for so long and it just kind of gets me kind of bummed out. <laughs> I was, uh, I, I actually told this to, uh, to Georgie, my wife. And the first thing uh-huh. out of her mouth was, that was written by someone in philosophy, wasn't it? <laughs> right. So she totally, she totally knew. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. So, um, so let's move on. Let's talk about someone else. Hey, you know one thing I wanted, I wanted to bring up, which sure. I thought would be kind of interesting, totally off topic, but you know, I guess it was like four or five episodes, uh, shows ago, we talked about inflation a little bit. Oh, yeah. And you were asking me about inflation, and I came up with this crazy, like, uh, you know, we're on an island, and so let's say there's only 10 of us, and, you know, seashells are sort of our currency, and yeah. app, and how does inflation work? And the idea was like, well, you know, let's say that I'm, my specialty is, is fishing. And your specialty is sort of building huts or something. And there's another eight people and they do other random things like, you know, they go and, you know, trap small animals or, you know, other grow some, you know, herbs or something, whatever the things that we need to do to survive. Yeah, the the <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I can keep going. <laughs> okay, so we're on this island, right? And we say, well, basically, essentially what inflation has is if, if there's more, if more seashells are introduced, our little, cur- our little currency yeah. without the productive capacity increasing, there's no more people and there's no more, our quality of life isn't increasing. Some of us didn't suddenly figure out a way to like have, you know, fish 10 times more efficiently. You it's know? just more shells. It's just more shells, which means that they got introduced into our little group. Someone went out and found shells. And so all of a sudden they started, they, without telling anyone else, they started like buying more fish and buying more huts. And all of a sudden we're like, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, we all have more of them. So it's like, well, you know, you're going to have to pay me more shells for me to do this thing for you. So anyway, so that's, that's that was kind of the inflation discussion. Yep. But I'd been reading recently. There's this one guy who's written a ton of analysis on this kind of stuff. His name's Michael Shedlock or something. If you type in Mish in Google, M I S H, he's like I can't remember the name of his website. It's like Global Economic Analysis or something. He runs like a, a, some kind of money management firm, and um, he makes some really strong arguments for deflation that we're that we are that despite the fact that the the Fed is pumping all this money into the system, you know, by uh, giving by pumping creating all this money to get to you know uh, to give to these banks to sort of support the to support the banks and all their toxic assets, he's like, what's happening is that the you have to think of money not just in terms of sort of like printed money, but you have to think in terms of credit. That's the sum total of money, yep. and the problem is that. Um, Credit is contracting faster than money is, is, has been created because even if the banks get all this additional liquidity from the Fed, all this additional um, – uh, it doesn't really affect, in, it affect anything because they're not lending. They yeah. don't want to lend. They're hoarding cash. And um, if they're not lending, no more money is getting introduced to the system. And a lot of loans, all this stuff, all this credit are, not, are being defaulted on. So essentially people aren't paying – Paying back their loans, they're just defaulting, and that's and, the, and and banks aren't lending, and because of things like unpl- unemployment ri- continuing to rise and consumer spending continuing to drop because people are are losing their jobs, aren't employed, are nervous about the economy, um, uh, they're not they're putting spending. prices down, and and you know in Target and Walmart prices are going down, yeah. not up. Yeah, you have to, and so, so they have to because people aren't going to spend it otherwise. And people are being careful, very frugal with their money, and they're trying to pay down debt, and and so what happens is that. 
in order to get people to spend, they lower the prices and the competitors have to lower the prices. And if they're not making enough margins, they start to have to letting people go, you know, are lowering wages, you know, we have to drop our price. So all of a sudden it becomes this, and then more people are laid off work or paid less, so they're willing to pay less. So you have this sort of deflationary cycle that's hard to get out of. And um, I think it's one of those that you got, because there's a lot of articles both ways that get posted up to the, you know, Hacker News and Dig and whatever. And one article's, you know, posted up about, oh, huge inflation is going to happen. Another one, oh, huge deflation is going to happen. I think it's one of those things, and this is a pattern that I've sort of just, I think I'm just noticing as I'm saying it, which is people, because there's only two options, people just, you know, pick a horse and then start ranting about it. Well, they do, but it doesn't mean that they're right, right? I mean, yeah, I know. Like, that's what I'm saying. It's like, like, people just mean put they're... out articles about one of the possibilities of you know, doom and gloom. Right. And since most people aren't experts in, in the field of economics or in, the, yeah. in finance or, or, or they, and they don't do any research themselves and they read a couple articles and they're like, oh, okay, well, I think this is going to happen. And the same could go, goes for me and you, right? I mean, it's like I don't spend 10 hours a day reading articles on macroeconomics, but um, so essentially – my understanding of it is it's superficial at best. Even if I've read, you know, 30 or 40 articles this month, it's still superficial. Um, you, sent but, me that uh, Mish's, you sent me that Mish's Global Economic Trend Analysis uh, website, and I had a look through it. And I mean, yeah. I have to admit, what he says makes a lot of sense. It, I mean, it makes the other, it makes the hyperinflation side look a bit silly. It yeah. does. Well, I mean, because basically the hyperinflation stuff is really only taking part of the um, uh, part of looking at part of the picture, and the, yeah. and, the, and the people who've been right, and it seems like it makes it, it, it this, the argument seems much stronger when you actually really go into the details of it. Now, obviously, nobody knows for sure what's going to happen. You know, it's all guess. I'm just put me in the deflation camp. Yeah. <laughs> you no, know, put me in the deflation camp. So we'll see two years from now where everything stands. But I think. I think that uh, we're in a deflationary cycle, and I don't think there's a whole lot the government can do about it, no matter what they do with the money. So just to complete the, uh, the discussion, just to hit the other side of the start, because we spend a lot of time talking about inflation or hyper, possibly hyperinflation, I think it's uh, deflation is the, uh, is the much stronger possibility. I think now, does that include um, basically what the dollar is worth against the pound, for example? Is, well, um, I don't. I mean, I mean, that's that's just compare. I guess that's not necessarily the same thing because the currencies can float against one another depending on, you know, their uh, how much money they have in circulation and what's going on in their internal economies. Because if you have a I look at really, that, I just sent you a link there. If you have a look at that chart of the the American dollar over the last uh, six months or a year, six months, it certainly has gone, you know, down. Right. Well, I, I guess that it. Yeah. You know what the dollar does against other currencies doesn't necessarily mean. Yeah. But I, but I think we're I think we're talking about global deflation, okay. not just the U.S. I think every, everything's deflated because you you know all the first world countries are pretty much tied together on this. Right. You know the um, the uh, England you know and Europe has a lot of the same problems that the U.S. did, if not worse. I mean I think England got hit worse. They didn't even by the. Uh, by the mortgage meltdown, and I think all of these European banks, I think, were lending to Eastern Europe and Latin America, and they had the same kind of cheap money, um, you know, real estate bubbles hit those countries, and they default even at a more rapid pace, more rapidly than the U.S. I, you know, I don't know these numbers for sure. I just have this vague memory of reading about that, but I think um, I think it's all going down together in the same deflationary. It's all affected. Deflation is affecting all of it. It's all coupled. There's no decoupling. Well, that's that. I mean, that's a bit of good news. I mean, if you know, no, it's deflation is deflation or inflation 
is it, bad if it's not if it if it's not very slight. Well, because it destabilizes uh, the economy, destabilizes behavior. So deflation. So I, just, I suppose what happens then is we start getting paid a lot less. Like that's when our the people who are buying from us start saying, "No, I'm not going to pay you 100 bucks an hour anymore. Now I'm going to pay you 50." That's that would be an exactly. extreme case. Exactly, it starts deflation. going in that it starts going in that direction, and people oh, you know, okay. employment will start getting unemployed. People don't spend, into you know, uh, you know, uh, businesses start going start getting you know, smaller or going out of business, and and so what happens is just like okay, so. If, let's talk about inflation first, right? If if you know that prices are going to rise very quickly, like, um, and I think I gave you the example of a friend of mine who who lived in Brazil in the nineties. Yeah. And there was some outrageously high um, inflation rate, and they had to change the prices of the uh, cafe or restaurant that he worked at like on a daily basis. Um, unbelievable. And so what happens if when, when things – you don't hold on to cash, right? You want to spend it immediately, right? Because if yeah. things are going to go up in price tomorrow, you want that asset now. You want whatever that is now. You want to hold on to it for two weeks because now it's going to be that much less. And the, and the opposite goes in deflation. So if you're hit by heavy deflation, people say, well, I'll just hold on to my cash. I'm not going to spend any money, right? So everybody yeah. – it's sort of game theory. It's like everybody plays chicken. Everybody's like, well, I'm not going to spend my money. I'm not going to spend my money. So nobody's spending any money. <laughs> and everybody – nobody wants to consume and everybody's holding back and businesses start going under and people – Companies can't survive, so it's it's bad. It just it's the other way around. Basically, what you want is economic stability. You know, instability, deflationary or, or inflationary is bad because it, people don't operate in normal, predictable fashion. And people, yeah. Anyway, I, we won't have to go on, on about it forever, but sure. especially since I don't know enough about it to go go to to say too much more about it. Um, but uh, I just wanted to bring that up since we had talked about it a little bit a few episodes ago. Did you have any other any other things you wanted to bring up? Let's see. One thing I noticed is uh, an IE8. They have this new debugger. Have you used that? Nope. It's kind of like it's kind of like Firebug. It, huh. It's built right. It's built into IE8. Um, they have like you know you can put breakpoints and you know you you know you have like a watch window and this you know your call stack and uh, you can look at the HTML and the only thing I notice unless I you know sometimes it takes me a while to figure out how to use these tools the right way but I it looked to me like you couldn't look at the generated HTML only the source right. HTML yeah now, I might be wrong about that because I looked at this all for about thirty seconds and I just kind of threw my hands up said screw it and I went back to using um, Firebug but. Obviously, that doesn't work very well for me because I do so much of my stuff is is sort of AJAX um, based, and so I generate so much of the of the DOM yeah. on the fly that if you only show me what came over initially without after the after JavaScript created a bunch of affected the DOM, I don't really am I what am I looking at? You know, my, Talking the, about creating the DOM on the fly, that to me, we 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 were sort of vaguely having a discussion about this one time weren't we went like mm. because the way the way that i do it is different to that what i do is i i use the inner html method essentially and i know that's probably just like your comment about source control <laughs> not using source control my comment about using inner, inner html and not the dom it's probably gonna like ha- offend some people but the thing about it is is what Good, i like but let's offend like, we need to offend some people i mean <laughs> what, you know what i hate about the like, thing if we're, it's not, like, if we're not offending anyone we're not trying hard enough you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like we don't have much of a show if nobody's getting offended i, I guess so let's, it's, let's, because uh, it's so abstracted it's really easy it's really easy for you to lose context between what's happening on screen and what what your code is so you can look at your code and it's so let's let's say you know you create a login screen right and you're doing the whole thing through um you know appending children and and that the whole proper way to do it with dom 
okay. right? You and then also, you know, you are attaching the events the proper way that you're supposed to, rather than sort of just writing them into the link. Then mm -hmm. everything's so separated. If someone else comes along and looks at your code and it's not you, or if it's you who comes along and looks at your code in two years' time, it's incredibly hard to find out how the freaking login page is built in the first place. Whereas if you use inner HTML and you build it as a template, you know, mm -hmm. you, you, you basically create a JavaScript template file and you say, you know, you, you, just, you just have the HTML there in the quotes and you come along in two years time and you look for template.login, you know, there's the template. It's just all there. It's all in one place. You didn't have to attach any events and mm -hmm. it's very, very maintainable. Yeah, you know, look, I mean, there's so many different ways of doing things. Um, and that's why when people start getting so religious, like, well, you, you know, if you don't use, you know, test-driven development or you don't use, you know, Ruby or you don't use, you know, this or that, then you're an idiot and, you know, you don't know what you're doing. It's like, I don't, whatever, you know, it's like there's a million ways to spin a, skin a cat. And the only thing really matters is can you write high-quality code that, doesn't have very many bugs. It works well in a reasonable amount of time that people are happy with, you know. Well, and well, it works, and that's maintainable. And you can do that a lot of different ways. And everybody can argue about the best way. You you have to use Haskell or OCaml, or you have to use Erlang, or you have to use Linux, or you have to, you know. Everybody wants to say you have to do this or that. And it's, I just it's think, different if you're if you're yourself, or if you're part of a team, or there's going to be new, if you've got a high turnover on your team. So, for example, one project I worked on, you know, it like. The original team had started it out that way, the way that you you do it, you know, using the proper DOM stuff. And then someone else had come along and done a whole bunch of um, inner HTML stuff. And then someone else had come along and done more DOM stuff. And it was so hard to understand what the hell was going on. So, you know, that is a big part of the equation. Is Oh, no, I guess you do have to have that's some That's the one kind thing you didn't mention is just consistency. that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, I think if you have new to, people are going to be working on it, basically. If you're going to have more than one person using this, especially working as a team or whatever, then yeah, I mean, I think you have consistency. Look, you have your your programming language or languages that you use, and your yeah. source control that you use, and the coding standards, and yeah, you have to set that. Otherwise, otherwise, right? There's too much friction, right? Because nobody yeah. can read anybody else's stuff. Nobody understands what the hell anyone else is doing. And uh, yeah, I agree with that. But I just mean that, like, you know, yeah. When I when I look at what you're doing, I was just like, I wouldn't want to do it that way just because the way I do it, I, to me, just seems so natural and, yeah. and sort of easy to understand. Um, but for you, you might look at it and go, God, I don't understand what you're even doing there. I can't. If I could look at my template and I could just look at like have functions that said generate, you know, or just pushes in inner HTML, like 15 lines of, of HTML, then, you know, I could just look at it and know exactly what it's doing. So, I yeah, that, I can see that. I mean, the, 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 I guess the main conceptual thing that I do that I think that probably a lot of other coders don't do, and mm -hmm. I don't know whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, but for me, it certainly makes life easier, is uh, like, okay, with, with, within PHP frameworks, for example, typically what they'll do is, you know, you'll have your views and you'll have your controllers, and they'll mm -hmm. just be completely separated. They won't be in the same directory. They won't be, uh, you know, You'll, you'll have your views area and you'll have to sort of hunt through them to match them up with controllers, right? Mm -hmm. But the, mm -hmm. the way that I always do it is I'll always put the view and the controller in the same directory on the disk. Now, that, mm -hmm. they're, not, they're not coupled in any way other than the fact they're in the same directory. 
But I just yeah. make a point of, you know, view, controller, template, JavaScript, whatever. Anything that's associated with a, an action or, you know, a certain area of the website will be in the same directory. Yeah. So all the codes together. So I sort of take that concept as well into the JavaScript. And that's sort of the way that I... Do you see, do you see where I'm yeah, coming yeah, from? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I, th I think as long as you have consistency, it probably is... It's fine, you know. It's probably arguable. I'm sure there's a lot of different ways to argue why the other way might work better or whatever. Right. But, you know, it's like as long as you have some kind of structure and consistency that that can make some kind of sense, it's probably fine, you know. Um, you know, but thing is, if it's different from what you're normally used to doing, it just seems like seems usually seems stupid and nonsensical and confusing. But after a while, you're like, oh, okay, I, I guess that's why, you know. I mean, to make some kind of sense. Um, yep. I think consistency is the most important part of it. And at the end of the day, the only metric, really, like I said before, it's like, do you write good, high-quality code that's fast and works and doesn't break and that people can read and extend and you do it quickly enough? And if you can't, I don't care how many methodologies you use. I don't know if you're, if you're agile this and test-driven development that and use this language in that way. It doesn't matter, you know? And because, you know, I, I just matter, you know, because there's plenty of people who can not use a lot of stuff and write high quality code that you know that checks all the boxes that I just mentioned and there's plenty of people who can follow you know all the best practices and still can't write code to save their life it's just crap it's yeah. like I look at people and I'm just like I, you know I look at this code and I look at what people I'm like I don't you know how many people are working on this thing why is it taking you so long why is this so crappy you know and um, I don't know I think it's kind of like it kind of reminds me of um, the educate one of the problems of the education in the U.S., like in uh, K through 12 stuff, is the unions have it to where it's like extremely difficult for principals to say fire a, te a bad teacher. Right. But in the whole solution to that is well, I'm sorry, the whole thing. But one of the solutions to making teachers getting better is giving them more classes, right? Get more accreditation. But that doesn't really affect anything, you know. It's just I mean, you make teachers them a little bit of that. But some people are just good teachers, and some people just aren't. It doesn't matter how much you teach them, and how many whether they get a master's degree in you know child development or education or not. There's some people who are just you know inspiring and you know and and good at presenting and getting people excited about a subject and good at explaining things and have energy. And there are people who just aren't and don't. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter how many classes you go. And I think same with coding. You know, it's like. You can introduce all these methodologies and tools, and some of them can be helpful, but, you know, a lot of it just comes down to the coders themselves. That's my thing. I mean, you know, cause I, it's funny because I, I read Hacker News all the time, right? That's like one of my – it's like my, practically my homepage. Yeah. And it's like it's a constant onslaught of Haskell and Erlang and OCaml and, you know, I don't know, Factor, all these kind of just bizarre – you know, um, esoteric sort of languages, which I guess are becoming less esoteric, but I'd never heard of Haskell, Haskell and OCaml before a year ago. And, you know, they talk, well, you know, it has tail recursion and closures and, you know, lambdas and does all this stuff. And you're like, you know, I, that seems cool, I guess, functional premise are cool. But at the end of the day, it's like, give me a, a function, a loop, a conditional <laughs> variables, and I can make the damn thing do whatever you want. I, you saw, I saw an article that was... Um... It was basically saying, are you a bad programmer? And one of the things it says is, do you rely on loops? 
then you're probably a bad programmer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, give me a break. This stuff's so asinine, you know. Everybody, everybody on the uh, on those things, they, everybody thinks they're such a badass, you know. They're like, oh, I use Haskell, or I use Lisp, and anybody who doesn't use Lisp is just a troglodyte, you know. And everybody who doesn't use is just anybody who uses Java or you know is is or PHP is a moron. It's like give me a break. It kind of reminds me of high school. It's like. If you if you listen to some very obscure band, you know, you're really cool. But if you listen to more, you know, common music, you were just like an idiot. <laughs> you know, you were just totally uncool. And it kind of reminds is, me a, of that. A funny thing is to see a coder who knows one language well move to another language. And because they know the, the previous language, they will basically code. Let's say someone moves from Java to PHP. They'll mm-hmm. code in Java in PHP and they'll do things that isn't available to you in Java. And they'll think that it's not available to you in PHP. You know the way that, for example, PHP would give you so many built-in functions like array mm-hmm. functions and all this mm-hmm. sort of stuff. And the, and it's interesting seeing people moving from one code to another. You know, I don't know whether you've I think ever seen they always have. I think that happens. I mean, it's like when people speak languages and they're learning, you know, Spanish or German coming from English, and you kind of and they're yeah. kind of That's speaking a strange way because they're constructing it from that yeah. perspective. And you're like, yeah. what are they saying? You can understand what they're saying, but it's so bizarre. Yeah. And I think it's the same thing. You hear people. I, I, I we're talking about Python. There's that Pythonic way of doing things, you know, a Ruby way. And like, if you're coming from say Java to Python or Ruby, you might do things that are really are less efficient because you're just not aware of them. Yeah. But I think you know, but there's always that learning curve. There's always that period of three to six months where you're still not quite really flowing the language. You're still kind of doing things. It's like well, of course the language is C- only half the half the thing. I mean, the environment's the other half. You know, it's the tools that the language comes with, and the yeah. the, the intricacies of the I don't know, configuration and all this type of stuff. I think in the end, it, it, a lot of it has to do with, um, I think, attention to detail, taste, uh, uh, really trying to make things elegant and simple and clean. Yeah. And, you know, and that can be done in any language. You know? and, and the reality is that all these languages are, I guess, what you call Turing complete. You know? And uh, you know, I can, people complain about JavaScript, but I can make JavaScript do just about anything you know, within the limits of the browser. I don't know how anyone can complain about JavaScript. I mean, it's, it is, it's a the emerging star like it has been when first of all i used to work for a guy um uh, a while ago and he he did a lot of stuff in javascript and i sort of used to think that was kind of funny mm-hmm. um but now i've realized that he was a visionary like seriously mm-hmm. <laughs> he just totally understood the future and where you know where everything was going and you know so many applications are going to be built in javascript it's just done i I like it. You know, once Firebug came along to where you could actually have, you could actually do step through your code and have breakpoints yeah. and, um, you know, call stacks and watch windows and all that stuff, then you're like, okay, done. That's all I really need. You know, even as yeah. profiler, right? Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, it's, that's good. And it keeps, they keep making it better and, and better. But I mean, you know, Tell once. Me about the profiler. Yeah, I haven't really used it that much, but you can just hit profile, like start or stop and it'll. Do you mean like net, net profiling or performance profiling? Performance profiling, but they also have like you can also you know they have like the net requests like you know like when you're let's say you're doing AJAX requests or let's say it's going back and forth to get different images or external JavaScript files or style sheets it'll tell you how long well it's like 37 milliseconds to retrieve this 115 milliseconds to retrieve that you know so that's really useful you know hey I've got I, a good a good hint for um, PHP uh, optimization um, one time I was working on a script and and I had, it was I was running it on you know on local host and it was really eating up the the the, the resources because mm-hmm. of because of a certain loop like a database intensive loop and you know just by putting in you know a fraction of a second sleep just mm-hmm. totally 
made it work in a much better way. And it used, you know, in, instead of using 60% of the system resources, it went down to 20% kind of thing. Hmm. What was the overall performance hit really executing the script? Oh, like barely, you know, barely noticeable. Hmm. That's a, see, that's because Prezo keep, I'm sorry, PHP keeps getting this bad rap that it's like, you know, it's like, it's like foodies talking about McDonald's or something. Something's going know? on with your mic there, like lots of wind or something. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm staring next to a fan. I'll move away. Um, but you know, the, 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 there's this talk about PHP as if, as if like your, your food aficionados are talking about like fast food or something. Like, oh right, okay. Disgust. Like, oh my god, <laughs> who would ever use PHP? Oh, oh just god. just Yahoo, like one of the biggest sites on the planet. And you know, I Google uses it's just a bit of PHP. Hilarious. I mean, yeah, it's like yeah, you know, I'm sure you know Ruby or you know or. Python or whatever are cool, and they're probably, you know, in in some ways, you could probably make some argument about why it's better because it has more structure and a, you know, a more consistency and different things like that. But yeah, you know, it's like, who cares if if you know it and you get to work? I think Joel Spolsky says it really doesn't matter, and I agree with it. It doesn't matter. I mean, if you can get the stuff to work. You know, and you can make it fast, and you write clean code because you can write crap code and anything. I mean, Ruby on Rails, stuff like that, probably. In, imposes a lot of structure on what you're doing, so it's easier for people to come in and go, I know what what they're doing here. And whereas PHP is kind of like writing C code. I mean, it, you could write really slick, organized, structured code, or you can just write total garbage. Yeah. But what happens is non-PHP people who are, you know, like, you know, whatever, you know, the 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 um, hacker news crowd is, is you know, or at least a lot of people who are writing about this stuff will will just completely take the view that all php and all is crap and people who write php are idiots and it's like i don't know it's like uh, <laughs> it's a bit much sometimes I, I, i'm I sure really... that those people are just young the younger well that's probably types. true most of them are yeah. probably young you get because it's easy to have like strong opinions when you're young and you've you've messed around with one or two languages and you find you've fallen in love with this new language and you're just like oh i would never go back to that language it's like ah. you know because i jump and forth between in a single day, I spend my mornings working in .NET, building. Um, we're building stuff that's like it's a trading platform, and uh, so it's all like uh, these sort of uh, services that run. Um, you have to be super fast, not of a C plus plus and messaging type stuff. In the afternoons, I'm doing all PHP for backend stuff and JavaScript. Yeah. Most of my time is spent doing JavaScript in the browser, so I kind of hop between those. C++ and .NET in the mornings and PHP and, you know, JavaScript in the afternoons. Sounds like, it oh. sounds like enough to keep your brain active. Yeah, well, it's funny because, you, you know, like I said, there's five different projects that I'm working on. So it's like a, a constantly like switching mindset. You're like, okay, so what was I working on here? <laughs> you know, but as long as I've, I've discovered that when you're switching between projects, as long as you create blocks of time like you don't want to be jumping back and forth between three projects every 15 minutes be like all right for two or three hours or four hours or whatever i'm going to work on this project and that's it and then i'm going to you know go have lunch take a break and i'm going to come back you know everything's close everything on my screen start up the new ide for this new project whatever language it is and then just start from there and find yourself uh writing a for each loop in javascript or some kind of JavaScript de- declaration in PHP, and they're like, pause yeah. error, and you're like, what the? <laughs> yeah, well, like a lot of times, like you'll expect uh, uh, that, like, 
when you when you open and cl- when you close like a, a, a braces for like a like a block in JavaScript, I'll be writing it and I'll expect it to automatically be closed. Like the .NET Visual Studio will do that for you, and I'm like, right. oh, yeah. <laughs> it's not going to do that for me. You know, the, I'll expect some IntelliSense or something. It's, that doesn't happen. Or the one that gets me all the time is in in PHP. Just for for copy and paste ease, PHP mm-hmm. when you when you write arrays, you can have a comma after the last element. Um, oh yeah. So really, yeah. I'll, I'll just leave I'll just leave the comma on. And then, yep. of course, because I'm in the habit of that, I'll do that in JavaScript, and it, you know that'll be perfectly fine in Firefox. And then I don't know, I'll be a thousand lines of code down later, and then I'll go and check it in uh, IE. It won't and even load. Somewhere there's like a comma somewhere in there, and I've got to like hunt through <sighs> yeah. the whole thing and find it. I have to spend a bunch of time. You have to do like a binary search where you like start commenting out. All right, I'm going to comment out half the first half, right? Comment out the second half. Com- comment yeah, exactly. out the second half. You have to kind of do this binary that's search. That's exactly it. Well, that's bubble sort, isn't it? Yeah, uh, that's a binary search. Okay. It's a binary. Bubble sort is like when you have, if I my memory serves me correct, okay, so you have a list of items, yeah. and, you, and you look at the first two items, and whichever one is uh, greater, you put in the second position, you switch Oh, up. I see, yeah, yeah. And then you go to the next, and then you go to the, the second and third, third, fourth. I think that's bubble sort. I mean, that's what there's insertion sort, selection sort, quick sort, you know. So, yeah, bi- so binary search, yeah, you, you always search half of the thing at a time. Yeah, and, and I think on average way. it's like seven or eight it, right. uh, iterations will find the solution, something like that. Well, so I, I that's, be yawning that's, on the podcast. What's that? <laughs> I shouldn't be yawning on the podcast. Well, that's fine. You're not going to hurt my feelings. So, well, I guess we've done about an hour, right? Uh, yeah. We've come up to yeah, yeah. probably. Oh, you know, one, one other thing I'll talk about before I forget, because I'll forget for the next podcast. It's really interesting. So this um, this project I'm working on in the mornings, like I said, it's working in this uh, trading platform. So we're we're getting in every single trade and market quote for every single equity option and future in the United States in real time. Okay. And we have to be able to process something like 400 to 500,000 messages per second, um, uh, which is a lot. <laughs> how many can you do on like one machine? Oh, you can do that. It just depends on the, it really depends on how you're doing it. So what you can process the, 500,000 on just like a standard PC. Yeah, and we're actually trying to do it between two PCs. And what we started to do, so it's the library, the the the, the data feed vendor who where we get all this data from, uh, their stuff's this very highly optimized um C library. And uh, they do a great job of compression and 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 everything. And they've been working on this for years. Their stuff is tight. And but what we want to do is we need to get this into um, across a whole network of different types of distributed um, objects that do all kinds of different provide different services, do different calculations, and uh, and a lot of it are we want it to be in .NET. I mean, at some point you want to move up to the .NET layer because it's just easier and faster to write .NET code than C++ code. So anyway, in in terms of the messaging, um, we were going to use something called um, Protobuf, I think, or, which is like what Google's really high speed messaging protocol or something and there there've been a couple of projects open source projects where they call like it's like protobuff.net or net protobuff or something like that net buffs or I can't remember what it's called but it was really interesting because they created this high this high speed binary messaging platform but you could only it, it was only for homogeneous messages coming from one source Right. So if you have two or multiple different types of messages, it didn't work. Like there was no way of determining what the message type was. Hmm. I was like, 
has anyone thought this out? I mean, it's like, it's, he's like, what? I mean, I guess there are certain types of, of, of obviously there are certain types of, of uh, backend applications that only get one type of message. It's a series of messages of the exact same type, right? So it just, it only sends one message type. So you can't sort of no give, way, it a, give it a flag to say, fil, you know, filter these messages. One I'm way message or type, you know, 37 or I'm message type, you know, I'm a quote, I'm a trade, I'm an it order. No, like you couldn't do it. It was weird. I was like, this is just bizarre. And so I was like, I must be misreading the documentation. I must be being an idiot here. And then I went on the web and there was a bunch of people complaining about it. And it's like, so what did good. you do? Just hack it? Just like, say, say you were sending something through, you just hacked a little um, letter on the front of it or something. No. Okay. We, we use something called um, Zero MQ, which is a high speed um, messaging um, library. It's an it's a C plus plus library. It's a cross platform C plus plus library called Zero MQ, and we wrote. So it's something different to the Protobuf stuff. That's right. So I just screw Protobuf. You know, yeah. we're gonna use Zero MQ, and Zero MQ was like the fastest of all of them. Like there was, I, I did I did some searching on the web, and then there's like someone had done a comparison of like ten of these different messaging frameworks, and Zero MQ was just like blazingly fast. And um, I can't remember what they did, how what their I didn't do enough reading in the background of like how they make it work, but it's it's really sophisticated messaging stuff. And so we wrote, so I I wrote a protocol in .NET on top of that to make that work, so that we can define our own you know message types that can be you know we have like whatever you know like ten or fifteen or twenty different message types. So is zero MQ like a C library? I mean, let's say for example I was writing a peer a peer to peer application, mm -hmm. I can basically use zero MQ C library or C plus plus library. Plug mm -hmm. it into my code, and then that's how I get things to talk to each other. Yeah, if you needed if you needed super high speed stuff, I mean, obviously in most cases you could just write your own little TCP library. Like I I've done this a number of times, different types of these high speed messaging libraries because oh, I've been this, so this is not this is this isn't on top of the TCP IP stack. No, this is not TCP. I mean, I think I think ZeroMQ can use TCP, but I think it uses some um, UDP multicast stuff. I think huh. I think is the fastest. So if you're broadcasting, I mean, it, it, it follows sort of the queue, like you have, you know, senders and consumers or everything has a queue. And I think they call them queues and exchanges. But anyway, I thought zero queue is pretty slick. And it's, I think it's, and according to the, the, the numbers that I'm reading, it's supposed to be amazingly fast. So I want to run it against my own TCP library, TCP IP yeah. messaging library that I'd written um, and just kind of see how it compares if, if it is that much what, you, you wrote a TCP IP messaging library? Oh, I've probably written five or six of them in the last 10 years. For so down, you're, you're getting down to the, um, to the TCP IP stack, or, or you're yeah. just sort of you're doing yeah. network, network connections? Like well, I do like socket. You know, yeah, I mean, I, I, you'll create like a TCP socket connection. You, know, you, okay, might, yeah. like, you might write one in C or C++, and you might say, okay, I'm going to create, like the way you might do it in C++ is you'd say, okay, um, I'm going to create a struct that you know has a few doubles and a few ints and a you know 10 character string or whatever it is right and that's a message of a certain type and you might have 10 or 15 of those of different sizes and different layouts and then you just do like a mem copy into like a, a byte array of that structure of that structure and uh, and then you just uh consent and then just do a send so just like a mem copy of the struct onto the into the socket buffer and out it goes and then in the, in the incoming, what you always do is the first, um, you can do it a couple ways. You can either on the very first like 
you know, um, couple bytes of the um, of the message is always determines what kind of message type it is. And so then you can mem copy as long as and you say, okay, well that message type is. 42 bytes long or 87 bytes long. Therefore, I know as long as there's that many bytes in the buffer, then I can mem copy the first 87 bytes onto a struct. Bam, and that's inside of a, and that's inside a C++ object, and you got it. Another way of doing it is that rather than saying the message type necessarily, you say, okay, well, the, the length of the message is the first thing, part of the message. Yeah, you could do a couple of ways. So I've done that a number of times. It's but, like we've got a new IP, uh, we've got like IP6 or something like that. Am I correct in saying that? And it's just infinitely faster than standard IP. TCP yeah, that'd, IP. Be, that'd be interesting. I don't, I don't, I haven't done any reading on that yet, so I don't know much about it. I mean, I don't know how that's going to affect the socket stuff. I think I'm too high. Uh, I think do, when you're up in sockets, you don't really think about that stuff very much, I, I would guess. It seems like a lot of stuff would be transparent at the socket, once you're at the socket layer. But maybe I'm wrong. Just yeah, guessing. just look up um, TCP IP6 in Google, and uh, there's some information about it. It's the next generation um, internet protocol, but it's, I don't think that it's uh, out there, you know, de facto yet. Right, right. It, I mean, it really opens up the number of, Mac, uh, of uh, addresses that we can, you know, move through IPs. But apart from that, yeah. it also really speeds, speeds the uh, stuff up. Right, right. Well, um, yeah, so ZeroMQ is the solution. People should check it out. I think it's pretty slick. I don't have hard numbers on the improvement, but whatever on the web, it's pretty, it's pretty uh, damn fast, and uh, it's been pretty easy to work with it once you get used to using uh, message queues, I mean, which people who do this kind of stuff are probably pretty familiar with message queues anyway. Interesting. That's cool. So I guess yeah, we should cool. probably call it, though, huh? We we're over the hour mark. Yeah. Good chat. All right, cool. Well, I guess that's a wrap. We're out.